everybody, and welcome back to the Feeling Seen podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. I have, as I said, slightly pre-recording uh, when we got on here, I have a legend in the house today. I have an icon among us to talk about some icons, really. Um, but you might know this filmmaker's work from such titles as... The Notorious Betty Page, Charlie Says, I Shot Andy Warhol, that little film called American Psycho, and now, newly, Dolly Land, Mary Heron. What else could the people possibly need to know about you before we get started, other than all of that headline material? Oh, I don't know. Um, thank you for inviting me on. You know, I'm excited. I was um, um, I was a journalist before I became a filmmaker, and that's a bit relevant to this, to what I'm going to talk about. I was a I was a journalist in earnest for 15 years. Uh, did long stints at Wired in New York Magazine, and it is always a thrill to have a journalist among us in the house because it is. I feel like like filmmaking, like so many creative professions, you very much do what you are when you are a journalist. It might be a career that I personally have left behind formally, but the the interiority of me being a journalist with like a capital J, that is, I think, for the rest of my life. Yes, yes. I think you never you never you never get over that. And you and I think it's also being a journalist is being really curious about the world. And that's I think what people mm-hmm. become journalists is that, you know, for me it was just always a way to, to to enter worlds, actually. It was like access and also just just I do love research and just endless asking questions and curiosity. And I think you, you, that stays with you, whether you do something different or not. Mm-hmm. Well, then that when I believe you made I Shot Andy Warhol at 42 or 43, mm-hmm. and that was your first film. Mm-hmm. So was it you, was it that sense of like going into different worlds and that sort of curiosity about people that made filmmaking like, you know what, there's another, there's another career that I just simply cannot deny. What was the thing that brought you from journalism to filmmaking? Well, you know, it was a gradual thing because even when I was in New York, uh, when I was young and sort of the, the, in my early twenties and I was uh, sort of fell into writing about music. I nearly never intended to be writing about music. I'm not, you know, music expert at all, but I fell into sort mm-hmm. of, uh, the New York punk scene, the very beginnings of it in CBGB. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to, to discover that world and be part of it. God, what a time. Yeah, it was a great time and be interviews. And I just wrote about it because I was really writing about the culture. Punk was really interesting mm-hmm. as a culture. And then I sort of got stuck, you know, writing, you know, reviewing concerts, which I felt like I wasn't necessarily qualified to do. <laughs> yeah. I felt this is odd that I've ended up doing this. I never intended to. Um, and I moved back to London, and um, but actually, even while I was in New York, I, I was thinking maybe I should try and go to film school. Maybe I should try and go to mm-hmm. NYU, which I didn't um, in the end. But I I moved back to London, and in my mid to late twenties, I was writing about music in London. But a lot of my old friends from college had, were in, working in television, and it was a kind of really interesting time in documentary. And so for oh, years, I was like, I wish I was working in, in TV. I wish I was working in documentary. <laughs> and, and then I was also started writing writing scripts, you know, in my late 20s, around 30, maybe um, started writing scripts with my with my mm-hmm. best friend, um, Francis Pelsman, and we were writing some stuff uh, and thinking about, you know, so I was thinking about scripts. And then I finally, I'd got a job as a researcher in TV, which was really fortunate uh first on a pop music show and then on a serious arts program it was when uh-huh. i was doing that that uh, um i was the researcher on a, a show a film about andy warhol and that's where mm-hmm. i discovered um got the idea for doing a film about valerie solanas and it mm-hmm. took me years i mean one of the things i started directing kind of uh sort of in my mid-30s mm-hmm. uh, mid to late 30s and i was uh, directing short films for television for a few years uh-huh. uh I don't know, five or six years. And then I moved to New York to uh-huh. to write a film about Valerie Solanas. And um, and that took, you know, I suppose it took seven years from, from the idea of having the idea to make a film about Valerie Solanas to getting it mm-hmm. made. That sounds about right. <laughs> but in the process, you know, um, some of the stuff of, that I've made films about, I started researching back then as part of my work, like uh, Betty Page, mm-hmm. you know, was something I was trying to do years mm-hmm. before. So I like to think it all. It, but I, I definitely made a late start, but uh, tried to make up for it. You know what? I am 38 and I am making that late start currently from about my mid 30s. So Mary Heron, you're giving me so much direct inspiration. I'm simply gobsmacked right now. Yes, yes. Actually, I was, I was 38 or 39 when I moved from London, left my career, mm-hmm. good career in London. And I just left it, moved to New York and because uh, <laughs> I got a chance to do a, sh- a show for a few months in New York and thought, OK, I am going to 
just move and start again and try and get this film made. So it all it all worked out well. Well, let's I feel like now is a good time then to invite the third journalist into the room mm. in the form of his girl Fridays. Yes. Hildy Johnson, played by Rosalind Russell, which is the character you've brought for us to discuss. <laughs> I'm through. You get mad all you want to, Hildy, but you can't quit the newspaper business. Oh, why not? I know you, Hildy. I know what quitting would mean to you. Well, what would it mean? It would kill you. <laughs> you can't sell me that, Walter Burns. Who says I can't? You're a newspaper man. That's why I'm quitting. I want to go someplace where I can be a woman. You mean be a traitor? A traitor? A traitor to what? A traitor to journalism. You're a journalist, Hildy. A journalist? Well, what does that mean? Peeking through keyholes? Chasing after fire engines? Waking people up in the middle of the night to ask them if Hitler's going to start another war? Stealing pictures off old ladies? I know all about reporters, Walter. A lot of daffy budinskis running around without a nickel in their pockets. And for what? So a million hired girls, motorman's wives, will know what's going on? Why, I... Oh, what's the use? Walter, you, you wouldn't know what it means to... Well, I want to be respectable and live a halfway normal life. The point is, I, I'm through. Movie from 1940. I think Howard Hawks was the director. When did you watch this? Was this early on in your life? Did this come later? You know, I really can't remember when I actually saw the the first film, and it may not have been until my 20s, uh, but I always loved, I think when I was a, um, a young girl or an adolescent, I really loved those films from the 40s, 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in, yeah. In terms of sort of the heroines, because they were, you know, fast-talking women in, in smart suits, yeah, um, and uh, and I think I felt like they were they were more smart. You know, I always wanted to be like the the Hitchcock heroine or someone who's clinging to a cliff face, yeah. changing banter with Cary Grant while you have some <laughs> adventure and you're you're solving a mystery or you're 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 chasing Nazis or something. That yeah. there was an idea that these women, you know, had you know had adventures. Mm-hmm. Cool, and I found that much more attractive. I always loved sort of thrillers and kind of screwball comedy mm-hmm. uh, more than I love straight romance, I think. Mm-hmm. And so those were the, those, I just felt an affinity with those women. I actually, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I wondered if like, I wanted to ask specifically about like that incredible era of like basically women's pictures mm-hmm. in the 1930s and, and 1940s, where it was such a like, in the way that like we talk about like quality now and time's up and ask her more and the you know wanting the sort of rhetorical wanting at least rhetorical wanting to push women forward with like more substantial roles more dynamic women intersectional parts it was almost like the 1930s and 40s with the like beautiful wave of women's pictures with these forceful heroines like the faces that we think of that define the golden age of hollywood like the studio era of hollywood um it feels like we we are not we are not even yet back to now the richness of the palette of heroines we were offered in the 1930s and 40s. It feels like that was like a default slate that was created in, in film programming at the time in a way that feels like we have to fight and claw mm-hmm. for that level of like Kate Blanchett movies to get made <laughs> at this point. And I wanted to hear from you, like I guess you you know talked a bit about it, but like what is I guess I want to if you is there anything you could speak to about the nature of like the contrast between like those heroines you identified with growing up and the ones that you see made available today or that you're given permission to to make films about today even um do the 40s still have a leg up on us on what like in terms of what leading women were able to do I wonder well I think one thing is that they were making more of them you know yeah and they had yeah. a machine and they had to feed the machine and then you had these amazing stars so you had Catherine Hepburn you know, um, uh, you know, or Betty Davis, um, and you had um, um, uh, Carol Lombard, um, you know, uh, Lauren Bacall. You, so you had these great images of, of women, and I think they had to make a lot of movies, yeah, uh, which they don't now. I mean, it's big, you know, um, uh, not that many smaller movies. Whereas, you know, a lot of these movies are very low budget, actually. Uh-huh. I mean, if you look at the Maltese Falcon, it's shot in like two rooms, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. on, on the lot of a few alleyways. Um, I think one of the things is there's great, great female performances. And then very often at the end, they give them an ending where they sort of backtrack. Oh my God, His Girl Friday does not have a happy ending. Yeah, yeah. His Girl Friday is not a happy ending. It's not a happy ending, but it's... Hildy Johnson. It's a better ending than it would be if she'd married the guy. 
Yes, it's this is in 2023 his girl Friday. This is a she chooses herself kind of ending. Yeah. But instead it's like, oh wait, no. The last image we see of Hildy Johnson is her grimacing and following Cary Grant out of a door as he chooses his job over their next honeymoon. Yes. Uh, Duffy, everything's changed. Tell Louie to stand by. We're coming over the office. No, don't worry about the story. Hildy's gonna write it. Of course, she's not quitting. She never intended to. We're going to get married. Oh, <laughs> can we go on a honeymoon this time? Sure. Hey, Duffy, you can be managing editors. No, no, not permanently. Just for the two weeks we're away on the honeymoon. Oh, what? I don't know where we're going. Where are we going? Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls, Duffy. Two whole weeks, Walter. Sure, you've earned it. What? What? Strike? What strike? Where? Albany? Well, I know it's on the way, Duffy, but All I can't right, ask well, you to... Honey, yeah, okay, Duffy. <laughs> well, isn't that a coincidence? We're going to Albany. I wonder if Bruce can put us up and say, why don't you carry that in your hand? Well, shit. I'm glad that we went through this whole arc with, with Rosalind Russell in yeah. this movie. The newspaper man, this Rosalind Russell. It's better than... Um... You know, all those movies where, you know, it's Catherine Hepburn movies where she realizes that, oh, you know, having a career just makes me unhappy and I'll, you know, I'll be miserable <laughs> yeah. because I've chosen my career. And, and there's no there's no there's no good way for, uh, for uh-huh. me to, to being a working woman. And one thing that I do love and I should just say about or just a little for those who don't know the movie, His Girl Friday is actually based on a movie called The Front Page. which mm. was about ace reporter um, Hildy Johnson. I can't remember who played it in the original um, sort of 30s movie, but in the remake, it was uh, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. But um, it was about an ace reporter who wants to go off and get married and have a life. And his editor mm-hmm. is scheming to get him back because he needs him to break this huge story. Yeah. Howard Hawks um, decided to make this, make the reporter a woman. And one thing about Howard Hawks, who's a very complicated figure, but a fantastic director, uh-huh. And I think he was, you know, as badly and horribly behaved to women in his, uh, you know, private life as any other uh, director of, of the era in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But he loved these very, and found sexy, these very masculine kind of women. You know, he mm. starred Lauren Bacall. He loved he loved these women who, like, wore suit, suits and mm-hmm. sort of talked fast in deep voices, you know. Had, yeah, 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 yeah. And a lot of sort of sassy, sassiness. And... Um, and I think that he loved this kind of masculine strength in women and found it sexy. Mm. So I mm-hmm. think there's there's sort of what you can break down and disapprove of in a movie and what the dominant inspiration of that movie is. Mm-hmm, what I mm-hmm. take away from the movie, uh, and I did when I was young, mm-hmm. is that Cary Grant, who's a sort of uh, ultimate, like, sexy, bad, but lovable man. Yeah. Um, what he most loves about Rosalind Russell, about Hildy, is that she's a great reporter. Yes, absolutely true. He loved that before he's saying get married again. He's saying come back to the paper. You're going to work at the paper again, right? You got a spot at the paper. You can't go work for another paper. I'll give you a raise. Well, haven't you got anybody else? No, no, there's nobody else on the paper that can write. This will break me, unless Hildy. No, Hildy, you got to help me out. Just as much money. Get out of here, Duffy. I'm busy. No, no, please, stay Look, darling, this will bring us back together again, just the way we used to be. That's what I'm afraid of. Any time, any place, anywhere. Don't mock me. This is bigger than anything ever happened to us. Don't do it for me. Do it for the paper. Scrams, Bengali. If you won't do it for love, how about money? Forget the other offer. I'll raise you 25 bucks a week. Listen to me, you great big bumbleheaded bamboo. I'll make you 35 bucks and not a cent more. Well, are you going to listen? Well, good grief. How much is that other paper going to pay you? There isn't any other paper. Oh, well, in that case, I'll raise it off. You go back to your old salary. I'm like, how do you like that? You're trying to blackjack me. Well, I'm I'm gonna show you something. Yes, I'll give you a raise. I'll, you know, let's get married. But I'll, but you're going to work for the paper. And what that, she's, <laughs> and what that is saying is that she's the best reporter around. Mm-hmm. You know, better than all the men. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that to me was, and I don't think I broke it down like that to myself, but I found that really sort of fun and inspiring that there's a, there's a woman who's great at what she does is, and is sexy for what she for being great at what she does. That's mm-hmm. pretty kind of rare, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though there's always some element that you can take issue with in a, in a, in a 30s movie or 40s movie, they're much better than the 50s movies. Where the woman is just like going to be suicidal and tragic if she doesn't get married. A lot of histrionics. There's in a the lot 50s. of you know. There's a lot of that of like, oh, I'm president, but you know, I'm not happy. <laughs> you know, I'm, remembering, but I'm not happy. What I really want to do is be at home with you. You know, and that was the big message even to films when I was a child, um, or there were films when I was growing up, which is 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. I didn't love the dominant 
image in movies either, which was a, a sort of hippie image, which was mm. sort of angelic flower child or, or right. mother, which, which was that you didn't want to be too smart or, or intellectual because that would mean that you weren't in touch with your real feelings, you know? Yeah, yeah. Your real feelings being that you would sleep with whatever, you know, guy, you know. Yeah, wanted to sleep, you know. So I, I, I didn't find the flower child, earth mother thing, anything that I could relate to. Mm -hmm. um, so I really fell back on those old school movies as as an inspiration of film. Did you find that when you were when you were starting your film career and and in the nineties and and you know with the with the the queer cinema wave of the nineties, which mm -hmm. is something I bring up a lot on this on this podcast, mm -hmm. and the the indie heyday, mm -hmm. indie cinema heyday, that sort of Sundance flourishing period in the nineteen nineties. Mm -hmm. Did you feel at that time that you were seeing heroines that were more aligned that you resonated with as much as you did from those movies in the thirties and forties around that time, or was does that era still stand apart after the sixties seventies? Wait, like, does the the 30s and 40s still stand apart sort of for you in terms of like what still kind of rings truest for you? Or did that ever kind of come into fashion again in a way that you felt satisfying? I know that they ever, you know, they, I mean, there's lots of great movies about about women. Of course, of course. Now. Um, I think also you're you're very influenced by the films you see as a child. Totally. And a teenager and, and you know, and in your youth. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, just one last thing about about uh, His Girl Friday. Oh, no, keep going about His Girl Friday. We're here for His Girl Friday. When I was a kid, child, there was a comic strip in the newspaper called Brenda Star Girl Reporter. <laughs> and I love Brenda Star Girl Reporter because there was, she was, um, you know, young, red haired, you know, young woman who would go out and get the story. <laughs> and um, and when I actually moved to New York, I I, I remember painting up uh, pasting on my bathroom walls. It was sort of as a joke, but also seriously because I was like yeah. a young aspiring journalist. A color full color page of Brenda Star Girl Reporter in my bathroom <laughs> wall. Um, and I also love Nancy Drew, you know, um, uh -huh. girl detective. And I, yep, those yep. were the things I loved was these girls who who went out and and had adventures. Uh huh. Had you know pursued the story and had adventures. And I sort of think. Um, was always looking for that. I was going to say, so I guess it sounds like then, like from the time of you being very young, the the girl reporter, the lady reporter was something that really, I think this gets to what we we started our conversation with, was that when you are, in, when you do journalism, it is often that you are a journalist as like a personality trait. Mm -hmm. And that's something that it, you know, you cultivate, but I think in a way sort of intrinsic to you as well. And clearly like these were intrinsically resonating with you, girl detective, girl reporters from the time when you were very young. Yeah. I mean, then I remember when I was like, I want to be an authoress. <laughs> an authoress. And I thought I would write children's books because that's what I read, you know. So obviously, I yeah. didn't want to write adult books because those are boring. Um, so I was definitely, you know, read a lot and was into that. And I think later, uh, when I was young and I uh, would go to movies a lot, I used to start start going movies uh, to movies on my own as a teenager. Yeah. Uh, just because I wanted to see, like, old movies, National Film Theater in London. I was in London, growing up in London. Um, mm -hmm. as a teenager and we go to the National Film Theater and, and, and look at like 1940s movies, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and and also sort of European art movies and stuff. And Great. First Goodwill and stuff. And um, and I just sort of started putting my, uh, my taste together. But I remember thinking at times, oh, I'd love to, maybe I could be a screenwriter, you know. I don't think, mm. I think I'm particularly a good screenwriter. My, my husband wrote the new movie, you know. And, mm -hmm. You know, I'm not... Um, on the whole, I always would want to collaborate with someone or or do someone else's screenplay, but yeah. I couldn't think of another way to be in the movies because mm -hmm. um, I, I wasn't going to be an actress. Um, and I didn't really never thought about being a director because I really didn't know any of any women directors. Right. Yeah. Apart from Lenny Riefenstahl, really, it was the only one I could have named. And then and then later, but that was, wasn't until my 20s, I saw a Lena Vertmuller movie, but I really didn't know of, I guess there were a few people that I didn't. I wasn't that aware of, but there were very few. I mean, it was not mm -hmm. something that you think, oh, I'm going to be grow up and be a film director. Mm -hmm. Whereas a young woman now could easily think that. I yes, I completely agree. And I there was I wanted I wondered if there was if you remember that part from His Girl Friday. That my favorite part of the movie, I think, mm -hmm. is Hildy literally chasing down a man and tackling him in the street. Mm -hmm. Walter, Walter, listen. I've got the whole story on how Williams got that gun and escaped, and I got it exclusive. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right, and it's a pip. <laughs> and it just feels so much like, like that's such a thrill of that career, sort of like the literal or metaphorical version of like running down something to make it happen. And I wondered if like, do you, is there a sort of equivalent feeling as a filmmaker of that like chasing the thing down and tackling it with your entire body well, to it, keep it in your hands in very slow motion you know because yeah, of, you know, that's kind of why i'm asking i think because it's so protracted yeah getting a movie made it just takes years and years so mm-hmm. whereas as opposed to kind of nailing a story it's just like it's more like this endurance test slog up a mountain i think mm-hmm. really well, and I think I, I was thinking like between the because I, I, I think uh, it was reading an article, like an interview about you. And there was the quote uh, d- dubbed you like the quote unquote psychopath auteur <laughs> with like the, the profile of, of figures that you have, you know, made films about in your career. But the thing that I was kind of fixing on to was with Rosalind Russell mm-hmm. as the figure that you picked here. Mm-hmm. And then with, um, you know, talking about like appreciating the, that era of film, the 30s and 40s with those mm-hmm. just bigger than life stars, your Crawfords, your Hepburns, your Davises mm-hmm. sort of situations. Um, there is, to me, the thread between like the movies you've made and those those things that sort of raised you is iconography. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to hear about your, I don't know, perhaps fascination, preoccupation with or like relationship to considering and studying iconography and then building your own art around it. Yeah, I think I'm interested in, I'm definitely interested in celebrity and the effects of celebrity on people. Mm. And I'm, my, you know, my dad was an actor. I spent some, you know, couple years of my early life in Hollywood, you know, and my dad was under contract at Paramount. Mm. So mm. I remember, you know, um, this is a famous family story that my dad took us to the set and we met Joan Crawford and it was in the, oh. in the best of everything with him. And she was with her, her, her daughter, the daughters or whatever. And, and my sister and I curtsied because we'd been taught to by our grandmother. And yeah. she started slapping her daughter and saying, see, see the nice little girls. Why don't you can't curtsy like that? <laughs> so, when, oh, wow. so when her, her, the, the, the daughter's book came out, Mommy Dearest, I believe, I thought, yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah, no, my first, it's my reflexive thought as soon as you said that was like, well, that fits the myth, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I, so I was interested in Hollywood. I'm interested in, I'm also interested in like failed Hollywood, sad Hollywood. Yeah, I remember yeah. spending a couple summers with my dad and. Um, in a way, Charlie Manson is failed, failed Hollywood. Ho- uh, failed Hollywood archetypally. Yeah. Sad, sad, failed Hollywood. That under the underside of Hollywood and the underside mm. of the dream. Um, this is the mm. Mulholland Drive, really, which I think is a great movie. That that movie that really captured that mm-hmm. dark, sad side of Hollywood and the dark uh-huh. side of fame, I think is very interesting to me. And yeah. And 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 I'm also interested in identity, um, you know, private and public. The yeah. definitely Dolly Land has that about who who are you? Who are you if you're famous? Yeah, you are talking about some of my favorite topics, mm-hmm. journalism, journalism to film, and the uh, the identity of celebrity. Like, this yeah. is a greatest hits list for me. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's just very, very complex because, you know, what is it that, you know, I guess the people who's, who manage it best are the ones who keep a separation between sort of who they are and have a very obvious persona. Right, so that right, they can, yeah. That they can project. You know, um, but it's but it's, you know, fame, especially in America, is a very, you know, tortuous, tortuous thing. Dangerous. Yeah. Have you now over the course of like, you know, having having done mm. so many films that sort of hone in on this with with figures that Andy Warhol, Betty Page, mm. Charles Manson, Salvador Dali. Mm. Like, what have you what about that examination continues to surprise you over time? Or is perhaps, is it, because I'm looking at, you know, looking at like the sweep of those figures and the eras that they inhabit, is it like, you know, it's a tale as old as time and the shocking part is actually the repetitiveness of how similar these these yeah. ups and downs and these falls are. Well, it's interesting with, with Salvador Dali because um, he and his wife, Gala, because it's a film really about a marriage, yeah, yeah. I liked that. I really liked that about it. I was like, oh, this is, I, I'm appreciating, this is the angle that I'm traveling through a story with. I was so completely compelled by Gala and that, like, tension between the two of them. Oh, yeah. Well, and also, great performance by the wonderful German actress Barbara Sokova, a legend uh-huh. of her own. Um, I mean, one of the things is that they 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 were conscious myth makers. Because mm-hmm, nobody mm-hmm. becomes fa- really famous unless they want really want to be. Right. Yes. I knew this from writing about music and rock stars and all that. If you're going to become that famous, you have to really want it. 
Now you may you may then find it's more than you more than you want or more than you mm-hmm, handle, mm-hmm. but you have to really want it in the first place. And there are lots of mm-hmm. very talented people. I know great actors who who don't want it that much. Mm-hmm. I feel like Joaquin Phoenix is like a classic example of like someone who clearly like shrinks away from that, but is also like participates in their own myth making to a degree. Like they did that whole docu- fake documentary yeah. about themselves yeah. with with Casey Affleck, where like he participated in the creation of celebrity enough to like build a fake persona around a documentary and like live that art. Yeah. So people so people are torn, and I God knows you can you can understand why, but it's it's very interesting then what it does to identity, and I guess you know. Dali and Gala, they've created their this myth around themselves. He mm-hmm. puts her on Gala in all his paintings and dedicates her and makes paints her as the Madonna and paints her as mythic figures. At the same time, you know, they have a completely sexless marriage. She's having mm-hmm. sex with all these other people. Mm-hmm. She feels actually in some ways like a, a bit discarded. Uh, one of the things that uh, we don't show it in the film, but it, we, uh, Gala talks about it in the film when mm-hmm. they came to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you know, in Paris, in the heyday of Surreal in the 30s and 40s, you know, she had, they had been kind of a, a famous couple. She was the the, the sex symbol of the, the Surrealists, you know, mm. had affairs with all these people. They come to to, to Hollywood um, and Disney wants him to, to make this animated film with him. And mm-hmm. nobody's interested in Gala because she's an older woman. Yeah. And it's all yeah. about like and, and they and. Dali, in once he came to America, had this completely brand branding of the mustache yeah. and the image that you could put. He was on the cover of Time magazine, and suddenly it's just him, mm-hmm. and she's in the shadows. And I think the sort of backstory to, to Dali Land is what that did to them and to her, and her sort of anger about being somehow discard, you know, discarded by mm-hmm. the world a bit, or you know, overlooked. Um, and and so there's all that 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 complication of, of celebrity, what it does to a personal relationship. And then it's, and then it just, and I don't think there's any answer as to what it does to identity, to personal right. identity being famous. Mm-hmm. Like in a way, who are you? Like who, mm-hmm. who was Andy Warhol with mm-hmm. his celebrity and his masks and his sort of performances, you know, every interview of Andy Warhol was a performance. Same thing with Salvador Dali. Every interview mm-hmm. he gave was a performance or very rarely did he really, open up Mm -hmm. his heart you know we're going to take a quick break but when i come back we will be talking more with mary about her work including dolly land american psycho and a personal favorite of mine the moth diaries then i will have one quick thing before i go about that new luca guadagnino movie trailer challengers All right, class, tomorrow's exam will cover the science of cosmic rays, the morals of art forgery, and whether or not fish can drown. Any questions? Yes, you in the back. Uh, what is this? It's the podcast Let's Learn Everything. Where we learn about science and a bit of everything else. My name's Tom. I study cognitive and computer science, but I'll also be your teacher for intermediate emojis. My name's Caroline, and I did my master's in biodiversity conservation, and I'll be teaching you intro to things the British Museum stole. My name's Ella. I did a PhD in stem cell biology, so obviously I'll be teaching you the history of fan fiction. Class meets every other Thursday on Maximum Fun. So do I still get credit for this? (laughs) No. (laughs) Obviously not. No. It's a podcast. (laughs) Dear Reading Glasses, it's been years since I've been able to read. I missed it so much, but I had no idea where to start. I felt so overwhelmed. But thanks to your show, now I'm back to enjoying books again and feeling like a reader. Love, Sarah. Yeah, that's an email we actually answered. Okay, maybe not that email specifically, but one just like it, because most of our listeners are named Sarah. (laughs) We're Reading Glasses, and we're here to solve all your reader problems. We give advice, help you find books you love, and discuss reading without making you feel pressured. No matter what you read or how you read it, we'll help you do it better. Reading Glasses, every week on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. This week I'm having a great time with trailblazing director Mary Heron, whose latest film is about Salvador Dali and his wife Gala. So let's jump right back into that conversation. 
And an interesting thread that gets into like as Dolly Dolly Land goes on is is the notion of age. And I think that's a fascinating consideration and like the idea of celebrity and the idea of celebrity identity and who are you, who are you really, who were you, who are you building yourself to be? And like the icon, you know, icons that have been present in your movies. Charles Manson is obviously aged. But like I, the I, the image of him that still endures is that like wild eyed mugshot, and Betty Page is obviously an iconic pinup figure, and Andy Warhol like we see him in a certain set way, and it was I I liked that aspect of the narrative in Dolly Land of like watching Gala like take off her makeup in her private room, her private little residence, basically her whole castle, and like pray to God to not get old. And at that point, she already is an older lady, but she just, please don't let me get old. And she gets it. I like that that carried through. Like she gets into a fight with Dolly. She's like, you bitter old man. Yeah. Like you're, you're old. And like, they're the, probably the same age or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And it was, it's so fascinating to me to think of that tension and like these iconic Hollywood figures too. Like they're so preserved in amber for these sort of like spectacular like to the like watching how like a Joan Crawford or a Betty Davis would preserve themselves like in you know in very grandmotherly ways with like getting their hair set and their makeup being so particular even in older ages as they they stepped out into the public eye like that consideration of what age does and what it means to a celebrity when you have so many memorials to you at your heights of your physical glory and then watching yourself age in comparison to people's awareness of you that must be a fucked process to undergo. Yes, I think it's, it's very difficult. Gala, in fact, you know, when we were researching, you, you know, uh, when my husband John was writing the script and we were researching, um, there was n- almost no footage of Gala. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot of photographs from the 30s, but almost nothing mm-hmm. of her voice, very little that we could give to Barbara Sokova, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I think as she got older, she did not, you know, want to be photographed which i understand actually as you can yeah through. it's like i was yeah. like cut me out of those photos you know um, <laughs> uh but it, but it, it, it you know it's it's painful because then you have a certain image of yourself and mm-hmm. Betty Page never wanted to be photographed you know and and it's it, it when i was young it was like i, I remember my mother saying I don't photograph and i was like really and now i'm like saying the same thing to my daughters and i do you know <laughs> we're all vulnerable to it you know um, and I think it's, that is that's such a that's such a month. Oh, no, don't not stop it. Stop it. Stop don't it, stop not. It. I don't want to be in the picture. I don't want to be in the picture. Yeah, no, I'm always doing that as well. <laughs> and it's like um, and, and it's but imagine if you're famous. Imagine if you were a famous beauty, you know, how hard the pain and the pain of the world. I have thought about this so much, Mary. This is uh, this is like the, the kind of aching that I feel when I think of what that process must be like, like. That is lonely. And like, it's a weird thing to be like, I can't believe I'm not so beautiful anymore is a thing. It's a difficult thing to say to people and be like, empathize with me. But like the idea of like knowing your Dorian Gray, like you have this like Dorian Gray thing happening where your painting is aging and you're seeing the painting age and you're just fucking terrified of that. And you just want to be preserved forever because you know how exalted you were at a point in your life for being X, Y, Z thing that we deem acceptable and gorgeous. Like what an un, what a strange transformation and unrelatable one for yeah. to go through compared to like at a scale that that is for for the famous out there that it is compared to most people who are you know your everyday moms being like keep me out of the photo yeah yeah i mean i think we need you know we demand icons i mean that was one thing yeah. that, that that warhol understood and, and dali understood both very catholic obviously mm-hmm. that we need really we need things to worship and yeah and um and both their art dealt with certain kinds of icons um and and that we have we but also it's um you know as a culture we also need to destroy our icons and we need to have you yes. know, people to publish photos of aging stars to show yeah. them looking terrible and we need to destroy them and I don't know so I'm sort of fascinated by by the sort of the religious aspect of of our need mm. to, to to elevate and our need to destroy and what that does, you know what that does. it's just this strange human thing at the same time I, I guess I'm also interested in we were talking about it before was just who are you you know and the idea yeah and there's no there's no i think it's funny because people always want an answer but with these people like of, of who was Warhol, who was dali yeah i mean you can only get a lot of like different photos and put them to you montage it, it together because you 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 won't find the single key mm-hmm. to such layers of of, of identity uh-huh, uh-huh. performance you know 
Well, and if I, if I, you know, the idea of living alongside one's iconography, if I may ask then, what is it like to have made American Psycho? Like, what is it like? I have to imagine it's kind of like you're the Stones and you're like, I'm playing Satisfaction again. Yes. And like, you're grateful for Satisfaction, but also, fuck, guys. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, it's so funny because um, I'm so happy when someone comes up to me and, and they say, I love your work. And I know they're going to say Mark Psycho. And then they say, Charlie Says or something. And I was like, yeah, I love you. Yeah. (laughs) If I may say, the Moth Diaries, okay? The Moth Moth Diaries. Thank you, because at the time, when that came out, everyone hated it. Um, And... I, I, I love a fucked female friendships movie. That's my bread yeah. and butter. And Sarah Bolger is such an, a tremendous actress. And I, she's just still so low-key being amazing. And I love her in that movie. And Lily Cole is such an under... Like, I wish she acted more. And I know she's out there, like, saving the world ecologically now. And I love yeah. that for her. But, like, she's such a fascinating screen presence and is so good. And I... I that No, that, that's a movie I really appreciate. Thank you. And I, you know, people have actually... It's funny because I was being interviewed in San Francisco at the, the uh, museum a uh, couple weeks ago. And, and she, she, this woman brought up um, um, Moth Diaries and she said, oh, your face just lit up. And I was like, I'm so happy because that's, <laughs> I'm so happy that that now gets an audience and it's kind of been, because re- I think it's not a vampire movie. It's a vampire. It's a movie about, about messed up adolescent friendships, which are yep. the, uh, the, to me, that was a movie about female, young girls' friendships, Sometimes they are gay and sometimes they're not. Yeah. But they're more that like they pour all the emotion that they'll pour into adult relationships into their friendships. And when yeah. the friendship goes wrong, there's nothing worse because they're both both so beautiful and so powerful and can go so wrong. And that, yep. you know, I had, you know, and I, I have two daughters, so I observed it and um, in, in my life and their life. And it, but at the same time, there's no word for the beauty and the and the terrors of of young girls' friendships, and yep. when the movie came out, a lot of sort of male critics said this movie's cowardly because it's really supposed to be about a lesbian relationship, and they don't show any it's lesbian like, sex. And you lack imagination, you fucking losers. It's like no, you have not. You know, we don't have enough words for love in our like in English. Mary, you are so right about that. I, if you if you if, if you listen to this podcast for even another episode, you would hear Jordan Cruciola say, so friendship loves stories. I am, and you know, I'll say it as many times as I can, I'm a panromantic gray asexual person. Hmm. And for me, like, sex has never been a part of my my life. It's not what I desire. It's not what I pursue. And hmm. so, like, so like dating relationships, that's never been a part of my purview. Like, friendships are my great romances. They're what I, so like, you know, when you talk about that, like, that's why I, I really gravitate towards those kinds of films. And I know it's why Mm. uh, Moth Diaries was such like a potent viewing experience for me because I love movies that dive into that insofar as we've come uh, unnamed level of like desire and but not sexual and competitiveness and Mm. covetousness and love and adoration like that melting pot of all those things I feel in the sort of like cataclysmic level way that I relate to my friends as like my 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 great love stories like that that potency of those teen stories that just hits so well for me because yeah I'm queer but like you couldn't call these like these gay friendships because they haven't been that. And yeah. they're not unrealized or unformed because I have not had sex with these people. It is yes. simply not about that. Yes. And I realized having very, very intense relationships with with other girls like in college. And eventually I realized because at that point you think, am I gay? Which would have yeah. been a, a, much harder. Like, do I have to go on marches now? And like, do I have to? Yeah. <laughs> am I an activist? You know, do I have to, have to like dedicate my life? Because in those days you would have to dedicate your life to an identity. actually having sex with these people would would, would add nothing to this you know there's no kind of it's not missing that so it wouldn't add anything with um, it um you know um uh, a hidden desire it's just a very intense exciting thing where you meet the person your heart beats and you're so excited to see them and to me that is a kind the kind of love or affinity or you know Mm -hmm. intense romantic friendship that i've had with men and women you know i have Mm -hmm. had it with with gay friends i've had it with with male friends who i'm not going to have sex with yes yes absolutely them and um and i don't know it's it's just it's just a poverty in the culture i'm hoping now with what young people are doing that that maybe there's more room or they'll they'll create more words or more yeah. identities for as as they're having a sort of 
more advanced spectrum. Yes. That's my great hope for the future, which I think is, is on the whole, a really hopeful thing. Yeah. I'm feeling seen by this conversation with you, Mary. Oh, good, good, I'm glad. <laughs> thank you for thank you for coming on and being an avatar for my own life experiences. The gift you didn't know you were giving today. I appreciate that. Well, I like that that like it's life is fun when you live it through like not problematic, but like through obsessions. Yes. And through like infatuations and through falling in love. Mm-hmm. And if we can have a bigger breadth of and, and I think that is a fascinating through line of your work with with the iconography mm-hmm. is the aspect of like these figures who are driven by obsession and who then we then become obsessed by and the cyclical nature of watching that being a viewer of it taking it in then experiencing it and it becoming this like circular process mm. of being all wrapped up in something and that's like that's an amazing that's a fascinating arc to have consistently about throughout your career well i think you know what happened with my first movie was i became so obsessed with the identity of Valerie Solanas, with uncovering mm. the Valerie Solanas story. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I discovered her, you know, I knew all about the, you know, Warhol uh, because I'd written about him and I'd, I'd met him and I'd interviewed him and I'd, I'd written a, a, a lot about the Velvet Underground and a lot about mm. Warhol when I was a music journalist. Um, and then uh, I was researching this big documentary and I, I discovered the this, the Scum Manifesto, and I realized that I knew nothing about her and that no one, there was almost nothing about her. If you look in the biography, mm. it's like two little references, and it's all about the fact that she shot him. So mm-hmm. she was a complete mystery, and it was pre-internet. Mm-hmm. So in order to uncover the life of Valerie Solanas was this detective work. Mm-hmm. Back to mm-hmm. the idea of the of Brenda Stargirl detective. and Yes. You know, <laughs> your very own Hildy Johnson. Yes, and then uh, I was working on a show um, in New York. That's how I got to New York, was working on this BBC show that was doing a New York um, uh, series. And this uh, young uh, intern, um, Diane Tucker, came on to to work on it. And I could see that she was this young feminist who was a really fantastic, uh, mm-hmm. very super smart researcher. And so I asked her to come and work with me for no money on mm-hmm. let's, come and, let's come and uncover the story of Valerie Solanas. And mm-hmm. for years, there was one point... Um, because no one was paying us to do this, um, we spent a day going through a phone book, all the phone books in the New York Public Library kind of phone book room, trying to find mm-hmm. this one person who was this great friend of Alice Lannis and couldn't mm-hmm. find their name. Uh, and anyway, we, we 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 went through you know magazines and phone calls, and and Diane got transcripts, and she tracked down. Uh, a copy of Valerie's missing play up your ass. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's, Perfect. It's, it's years and years of this. But I always felt that Valerie, my fascinating, my obsession with Valerie, my that Valerie was pulling me forward. Like I had no, no, I'd done these short films at the BBC that had done well. And I was, you know, doing well as a young, you know, as a youngish, um, you know, uh, TV director, but mm-hmm. nothing had shown me that I could, uh, you know, necessarily work with actors or make a movie. But I felt like Valerie was just like pulling me forward. My obsession yeah. with this was so strong that it was able to overcome all the years of of waiting and and yeah. all that. That um, and the obstacles and people saying you're crazy to want to make a film about this awful woman. Mm-hmm. And somehow Valerie, Valerie, pulled me, Valerie, and my obsession with her pulled me through. That of affirming my affirming my supposition. Thank you for that, and I'm glad you, in being the indefatigable journalist that you are, did not give up on that. No, and I, I sadly have arrived. At, I have to ask you a last question. Okay. Oh my god, I want to just keep talking to you. This has been so much fun. Um, but I guess my my last thing would be with like you know. I feel like going from journalism to filmmaking, like you, you know, you're still a newspaper man. You're still a newspaper man, like mm-hmm. Hildy Johnson. Like you, you continue that pursuit of of new worlds and, and minds and characters and curiosity. But what I wonder is, with like, you know, I've obviously read you say, and many other filmmakers say, like making a movie is so long and hard. Like making mm-hmm. small films is so long and hard. How have you found it challenging to maintain your curiosity? in the sort of trenches of what it takes to get these things done and made. And 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 continuing, and it's sort of a rejoinder onto that being, what is it that still keeps you curious after all of this time? Um, well, I try to do, so, even though I've done quite a lot of historical figures, they're all very different stories. Yeah. And the style is always different, I'd say. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that any of my films have really the same style. 
some of them are sort of more naturalistic than others and mm-hmm. more stylized. Um, and the subject always, it's always a world. I think I like mm. building a world. And so I never yeah. build the same world. It's never the same era. Yeah, yeah. Like, right. I'm not yes. going to go back to the 80s. I'm not going to, you know, with Dolly Land, I hadn't done um, the early 70s, which, you know, mm-hmm. And I, I moved to New York in, in 75. So it was a world that I remembered and just right, yeah. create that. So I do I do love all that sort of texture stuff and all that research. And what I say, and as I say to my husband every time we think, oh, why are we doing this? It's like, but we'd have to have real jobs. <laughs> that's so real. <laughs> no, and that's terrible, you know, because at least you're 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 your own boss, you know. And I've had real jobs. Yeah. Uh, lots of them. So I know what that's like. And I, I yeah, I feel in a way it's a you know, Mark Twain said, you know, about being a writer, you know, it's not a job, it's a privilege. And it's <laughs> yep, true. Yep. You know, being a filmmaker, it's a, you know, even if you're working for no money or trying, you know, it's a privilege to to work, do any kind of creative work. You are Gala screaming, I will, I will not be poor, but you are screaming, <laughs> I will not have a real job. <laughs> I, will not be, I will not work. Yes, I will not have a real job. <laughs> Well, Mary Heron, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me today. I, I couldn't, I couldn't have guessed, assumed, imagined the wonderful ways I related to you in this conversation. I'm so grateful for that. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, today. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. That was really, really fun. You know. Thank you so much again to Mary Heron. What an unexpected event of feeling seen for myself in that conversation with her. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun, and I, I so appreciate her taking the time. Her latest film, Dolly Land, is in select theaters now and is also available to rent or buy on demand. And if you live in L.A. and are listening to this right now when it comes out, it just so happens that His Girl Friday, His Girl Friday, is playing at the new Vidiots Theater in Eagle Rock this Saturday. You can go support independent cinema houses while you support a classic film. Uh, so check that out if it sounds good. And hey, you know what? If you're not feeling His Girl Friday, you can also go to the video store that is attached to Vidiots and watch any number of things that your heart desires. So that is the plug for local uh, for local cinema. You Angelinos, get out there and do your duty. And now for our one quick thing before we head out, uh, I want to touch on the trailer for the forthcoming Luca Guadagnino movie, Challengers, which is, it stars Zendaya, um, Josh O'Connor, and Mike Feist. Those two men, they're kind of like the British Georges to me. It's sort of all one guy. Um, they're doing good work out here. I've enjoyed Josh O'Connor and Emma. Uh, I've enjoyed, um... Mike Feist in West Side Story. They're fine actors in their own right, but like it's that sort of intersection of faces of the British Georges that really just kind of loses me. But anyway, that's not the point. That's not why we're gathered here right now. Why we're gathered here right now is because Luca Guadagnino, that guy, that guy will make all kinds of fucking movies. Like who's, how is this happening? I feel like Luca Guadagnino's output is like what we what we say, like, this is what we need more of in Hollywood. This is what we need more of in cinema. It's like original stories that are all different, often quite weird, really interesting, good ensembles, unexpected, like, usually anchored by, like, a bigger star, often Tilda Swinton in his work. Um, now, Timmy Chalamet has become a frequent collaborator. But, like, other than that, like, sort of, casting that you wouldn't just like pick out of the hat of the big studio shortlists for who's going to sell a movie um and obviously you've got the zendaya hook in here but then you're gonna bring in these two lanky gents who are gonna compliment her as co-stars and this move like the trailer for it is like it plays like it kind of feels almost like an erotic thriller It, it looks like an erotic thriller and a sports drama which hey coming off his cannibal love story horror drama bones and all why not make a sports film that is about a love triangle with Zendaya and two men. I think Luca's just out here kind of doing it all. And every time I see something new of his, I'm like, really? That guy made this movie? And I'm very excited that he continues to want to, I don't know, just roll the dice and do something 
seemingly unexpected compared to the prior movie that came out before, before Bones and All. You have uh, Suspiria, which that's, I can see how we went from Suspiria to Bones and All. But like before that, you have movies like A Bigger Splash and I Am Love, and those don't necessarily plant the seeds for cannibal love stories and Dan's macabre. Uh, But yeah, Challengers. Zendaya plays a teen tennis sensation, it looks like, who is about to rip up the world. And she meets these two teen, it looks like um, up and coming tennis guys themselves. uh, And they, you know, are just dazzled by her. It looks like they have a threesome based on the trailer. And but right before she's about to basically come, it seems like the 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 second coming of Serena Williams. Uh, she suffers a devastating, it seems like, career-ending injury. We jump forward in this trailer, and it, she's, like, married one of the dudes from the threesome. But, like, prior in the timeline, it seems like she was the boyfriend of the one she didn't go on to marry. So a love triangle situation. She's now the coach of the dude she married and has led him to Grand Slam success in his tennis career. He's a superstar. And then it's like, yeah, but he's like flagging or he's like jaded or something. So she enters him in a challenger's tournament, which is way below his status as a champ. But in that challenger's tournament, he will encounter the other guy he used to be best friends with that was part of the love triangle when they were young. So I'm like, is this an erotic thriller? Is it a straight up drama? How much like sports movie are we doing here? Like what's what's like the on the court situation? Like how does Luca Guadagnino handle a sports film? Is sports just going to be off in the background somewhere? A lot of questions. Excited to find the answers out. And excited for Zendaya. Excited to see a new... I'm really hoping... Like, there are some shots in this trailer that are, like, slowed down, just close-ups of Zendaya looking like a bad bitch wearing sunglasses. And I'm hoping those close-ups are the prevailing vibe of the movie. Of, like, how much bad bitch Zendaya can we get, I'm hoping, ruining both of these men's lives. I'm going to be a little disappointed if she's, like married and wants to like preserve the marriage. I'm hoping this is like a long game of hers. My hope is that she blames both of them for her injury for some unconscionable reason. I can't understand how they would be responsible for an on-court injury of hers, but she blames both of them for her lost career and potential and for being like the woman behind the scenes of a Grand Slam champion tennis man. So she has to endeavor to, when she gets her shot, ruin both of their lives and hopefully careers. Uh, That's what I'm rooting for. Anything's possible though with Luca Guadagnino. So we really, you know, couldn't say, couldn't say so confidently one way or the other. But that's the one quick thing. Challengers coming out uh, this fall from Luca Guarandino goes and And that is our show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jorcru on Twitter. It's J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Eben. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher, and this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.